everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Bree, and today I am joined by author of The Garnet Girls, author Georgina Moore is here. Georgina, thank you for joining me today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I can, yes. Um, so I am... I have two careers, I suppose, now. I have been for a very long time a book publicist. Um, So in the UK, I have done book publicity for a a number of um, quite big authors. And I still look after an author called Maggie O'Farrell. In fact, I've looked after her for 13 years, uh, author of the award-winning Hamlet. Um, And so I've had a long career in publishing. I was in corporate publishing for a long time, running a press op- running the press office. And then about, I suppose it must be about five years ago, I, I left um, to go and work for a small uh, PR agency. And we do, called My Disc Communications. And we do everything, really. We do across the tr- um, industry here. And we have American clients, too. We look after the Wyndham Campbell Prizes, which is an amazing prize. But kind of arts PR, really. Books authors, prizes, festivals, um, which I love because it means that I've sort of widened my experience across um, the industry, the arts industry. And then um, I guess I people always say, you know, did you always intend to write a novel? Uh, we can come on to that. I'm not entirely sure it was a plan, but with lockdown, um, that's what happens. It happened, I think, a lot in my life, a lot in my job, like for a lot of people all around the world, changed. And I had more time uh, and time's always been an issue for me with a busy job. Uh, and so I wrote The Garnet Girls, which is a debut and I've just turned 50. Well, <laughs> well, happy birthday. 50 is amazing. <laughs> I don't mean like yesterday. I just meant it's quite a nice thing, isn't it, to yeah. tell people that because I think there are probably a lot of people listening um, who you know, either have written a book or aspire to write a book. Uh, and I think it's always encouraging because I think we're always told, aren't we, Brie, that, you you know, you've got to be young, you've got to be marketable, you've got to be. But uh, it's simply not true. You can do it at any time. Exactly. You can do it at any time. Exactly. Mind you, 50 is young, let's be honest. 50 is so <laughs> young. Yes. So- <laughs> um, I always I have such a, a respect for the people in the bookish world that make it work um (laughs) how like tell me your path to Hmm. working in in the publicity the publishing world oh so I um grew up with a a total books nerd and you know I'm always amazed that um I guess my children now are 11 and 12 Sunny and Daisy and of course they've got screens but we didn't have I didn't have screens uh and so every minute of every spare minute I had I was reading and I was one of those classic head in a book nerds and I read everything and I was always writing and scribbling. Um, and my father had his own small, very small academic publishing house, which he sort of ran everything himself. So I sort of observed him and books were a big thing in our house. I was treated, I was taught to respect them. And I used to go out with my father and when he was hand selling in, in bookshops and when he used to take me to the London Book Fair. So I think it was always going to go one way. And after I finished my English degree, I kept writing these ridiculous letters to publishing in the UK saying, can you make me an editor? Not realising that that's not really how it's going to happen. And uh, my boyfriend at the time said, why don't you go and get, you know, I was obviously driving him mad. Why don't you go and get a job in a bookshop? Uh, So I went to work in a bookshop, which was honestly remains one of the most fun times in my life. Um, I just loved everything about it. And I was very well read classically. 
Um, but I had the kind of father who thought that anything after anything after D.H. Lawrence was just too modern. So I had this fantastic education at the hands of all these like 20 somethings in this bookshop and was suddenly reading Kerouac and Camus and all these people. So it was brilliant. But I, while I was in the bookshop, um, authors would come in, you know, and do events and parties and launches. And, and I said to someone, oh, my God, who does that? And they said, oh, well, that's publicity. And it was like a light bulb moment well, for me. Yeah. I kind of knew then that that was going to be my career. And not long after, uh, uh, it was Hodder and Stoughton, uh, uh, a publicity assistant job came up um, and someone recommended me. So there's this girl working, but she's just perfect for publicity. And off I went and I sort of worked my way up to the top. And in terms of, I mean, it, it's been an absolute dream job. If you if you love, like I, if you love shouting about books and getting people to read books, I mean, I've worked on some for not. I worked, I was lucky enough to work with Andrea Levy on her Small Island, which went on to sell millions and millions of copies and won so many prizes, and was an important book for its tale of the Windrush generation. But you know, when you're working things like that, I mean, it's a dream. And also travelled up and down the country. I looked after Hillary Clinton when she came for her Living History memoir. Um, was running around with the Secret Service. That was quite some experience. Lauren Bacall, Lauren Bacall who made me cry, but she was a goddess. Uh, we had quite an experience, her and I her memoir so um great so you've always got great stories Brie to dine out on I tell you with, with a job like that I guess now that you you've you've put out the Garnett girls like mm. did your has, has your time working in the publicity world like <laughs> helped it how does that like any lessons that you've taken from that experience that yeah. kind of have helped you now that you're writing well I think in the UK because everyone really knows who I am in publishing because everyone you know um they, it was, there was a lot of joking, uh, quite mm-hmm. mean, I thought, on social media about, oh God, when they, when they, everyone found out I had a big deal with a, um, Harp Collins, they were like, oh God, who's going to do Georgina's PR? <laughs> right. <laughs> Who does PR for the PR person? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But kind of, so that was funny. Um, but, I've worked with, really, I hope that my team at, at Tarbacoat think that we've worked well together. Mm-hmm. I ha- There were moments, I have to be honest, where it was hard to be hands off. Um, I But I've worked really, really hard. And I yeah. think hopefully for all the times where I've been a bit annoying and sent another email about the Amazon A page or the metrics or what are we doing about this, I have also done some quite a lot of stuff off my own back. And I think... My advice to anyone who, who wants to be a writer or is about to be a writer or published author, you know, when you work with your marketing and PR teams, it, you are a team and you're on that team. It's not about sitting around waiting for them to do make magic for you because that just doesn't happen. You've got to get stuck in yourself, do what they want, make suggestions, ask questions, um, because most press offices across, and this is, the, I know, the same stateside as well, um, most press offices and marketing departments are in publishing are really, really overworked. I mean, they are dealing with so many books, so many titles. And what tends to happen in publishing is 
you they get a new imprint or a new editor with a new list, but they never grow the people having to do the marketing and PR for all those titles. So anything you can do to help and work alongside um, is going to go down well. And at the end of the day, PR and marketing is about people's time. You know, in a way, they've always got that choice. Are they going to make that one more call? Are they going to pitch to one more person? And if you have made yourself, you know, likable, um, helpful, someone fun to work with, then they're going to make those extra calls for you. Well, give us like your elevator pitch for the Garnett Girls. Let's get into the book because I have so much I want to talk about. But okay. like, what's your pitch for it? So um, the Garnets are three sisters. And when, their fa- when they were very little, their father walked out on their family. He was an alcoholic. And he was the great love of their Mar- of their mother Margot's life. Um, and it was one of those kind of epic. Someone compared it to Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, which I really, really liked. Um, it felt very old Hollywood just reading yeah. it. I was like, oh, this is like an old Hollywood couple. Oh, that's nice. So quite a few people have said that. So, yeah, old Hollywood romance. And you, we pick up with the girls a bit later on when they're in their 30s. And what you really see is the results of the emotional damage that they've all been through together um, and how that's affected their different lives. And also their relationship with their mother, who is quite the piece of work, Margot. She's the matriarch. She's about to turn 60, but she's definitely not going quietly into a grandmotherly corner. She is front and centre main character, sexy, charismatic, controlling. And she... I think Margot makes all her mistakes out of too much love rather than too little. But she really wants those girls to settle down with nice, safe men who will look after them and protect them. Not the sort of drunk, sexy poet that she fell for, i.e. their father. But of course, as we know, Brie, girls don't want to listen to romantic advice from their mother. And so it's about how this plays out. And it's also about a secret that comes to light. Of course, all the best books have secrets, a secret about their father that comes to light and how they all deal with that. And they go on a journey as a family, really, and learn that actually they really are have strength in their alliance because they're the only ones that really understand what they've all been through. Yeah, I loved seeing the really towards the end of the book when the sisters kind of come together and just start having fun with each other and they've kind Mm, of embraced their mom. It's just like you've, it's this beautiful journey, but I have to start at the beginning. Was it, was it Margo and Richard that came to you first or was it the sisters? Like what came to you first about Mm. the story? Because the prologue, I loved it so much. I think I put on Instagram, like it felt very dreamy. And you're in Margot's perspective. And it's almost like she's having this out-of-body experience, just really wanting to be in this moment and like cap it, have fun with it before Richard goes too far. Mm. You get so much introduction in that prologue. Like Mm. you know what I did with that is I went, I finished the book and then I went back and wrote that. Okay. So when I read, yeah, because my editor said to me, You need something here, filmic. Um uh and actually, there are quite a few people interested in TV for, for, for this, for the Garnet Girls. And you need something that introduces all the characters. And actually, whenever I go to festivals and events, I often read the prologue. And I think people, when I read it, realise that there's quite a lot of foreshadowing in the in the prologue about it's light, it's escapist, it's beautiful setting, but there's darkness there. And that kind of is the book. You know, the book, I think has surprised people if they're expecting it to just be 
a light-hearted uh, escapist, you know, read because there's quite a lot of darkness and grit um, and issues in it. So it's that light and dark interplay, really. But to, to, to answer your question about what came first, I was, um, we have a houseboat in the Isle of Wight, which we rent out for holiday rentals. And I guess the Isle of Wight is, you know, kind of Hamptons-esque, Shelter Island-esque, that kind of thing. And there are these amazing big houses, very old, quite posh, long, lived there for ages families. And I was walking on one of the beaches there and a family came out of one of the houses and they were all like, it was a big family, they were all talking over each other and squabbling and bantering. And I just... And they were going sailing together. And I thought to myself, gosh, what would it be like to grow up in this community? Because the community in Isle of Wight is very, very close. Everybody, there's a lot of long history families. And everybody knows your business. Everyone knows your history. You you can't walk down the beach without, you know, meeting five people you know. And I grew up in London, where I really didn't have that experience growing up. I had a much more anonymous experience. And I felt that for some people at certain times in their life, maybe in a time of crisis, like for Margot, when Richard leaves, that kind of community would be an incredible support. But for other people at other stages in life, say Sasha, who's the wild child, youngest Garnet girl, uh, claustrophobic, difficult, unable to reinvent yourself in that way you do when you're a teen or a young 20. And so I really thought that I always knew I wanted to write about families and mothers and daughters because I'm fascinated and all my favourite books are, are, are about families and those issues. But I liked, suddenly saw where I could set it. And so that was really when the whole thing lit up in my mind, really. I think that one of the, one of my favourite aspects of the book is Margot and Richard, Richard's never actually, he's never really on page. Like we get him in the prologue. Mm -hmm. He's just like this looming presence throughout Mm -hmm. the book, especially like in the beginning when Imogene is in Italy, it's almost Mm -hmm. like she's trying to like recreate these moments that she (laughs) assumes that her parents would have had. It is this like great love affair. And it's this, I think you captured like so beautifully how the end of a relationship, Mm -hmm. like the ripple effect. So can you talk about writing that aspect of the book? Like, because Margot really goes through it and we slowly see how it affects each girl. And then we see them become the women that they are. So like, can you talk about like, the start of like the idea of Margot Mm. and Richard and their relationship coming to a close and like where you went from there. Yeah. So I think that I really wanted to explore this idea of what it would be like to grow up with very charismatic parents when you're in the shadow of that and also in the shadow of a great love and also to to think about what is a great love Um, and without giving any spoilers away, you know, this comes up at the end of the Garnet Girls, you know, was this a great love or was it just two people who couldn't live together in the end? Yeah. You know, what, what, what is that idea of romance? You know, there, there, there are two sides to my personality when I think about it. There's the big romantic side that loves big Hollywood romance and everything to do with that. But then there's the other more cynical side that thinks that with some relationships, there just is a time limit on them um, and that they run out of steam or they burn themselves out or... So I kind of wanted to explore that, but with adding adding a layer of them it being seen through their children's eyes and those different girls having experienced it in different ways. So for Sasha, who really never knew her father, 
he is this kind of she thinks he's this person that if he was in her life would change her life and make it better whereas Rachel who was actually there when he was 11 uh, when it all happened was you know knows that remembers him drunk banging on the door remembers the rows remembers the foot you know remembers how upset her, her mother was she really really is happy to forget about him and so I really wanted to show that because I think that's true I think we can all go I'm really interested and I, I'm lucky enough well it's not always lucky Brie but I'm lucky to have a partner who's a psychotherapist um, which is good if he's not psychotherapizing me for free when I don't want to be. Um, but he and I discussed this quite a lot about how three people can go through one same trauma, but all come out with very, you know, in very with very different results and reactions to it. Um, and you see that in the way they've chosen their men. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that they're trying to <laughs> please Margot. Yeah. Um, but actually... You know, I think there's this, I can't remember where it was, but I think it's Imogen, isn't it? Who realizes that she's trying to settle for someone the reader knows is just not right. Perfectly lovely. Someone said to me the other day, oh, I feel so sorry for William. And I was like, I know. And he will find a really, really nice girl who'll treat him really, really well. When he said um, on page 21, I underlined and he said, we're a bit too old to be romantic. I was like, oh, no, he's not the one, Imogen. He's not the one. No, it's just so, come on, William, <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, and when he does, I mean, yeah, the reader's supposed to know then because if, we all know, isn't it, it's, it goes through literature. If someone goes to Italy and they can't get into the Italian vibe, then they're toast as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you just showed so many moments where you could see as a reader, like these two people do not click. But you also touched on like Imogene has those thoughts of like, this is who my mom would expect me to exactly. bring home. Exactly. And he's not, you know, he's not, he's a nice man. And actually, Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, feeling really sorry for him when he tells her he's ill and they have that terrible scene where she wakes up and the radiators come on and she she can smell the roast dinner from last night and she just knows that she's got to let him go because it's not fair on him. But Imogen has that moment where she realises that actually maybe she does want the high drama. Mm-hmm. And of course, as we know, we can't say too much because it's a spoiler. She does really, really go for some high drama in her life as a she reaction. Does. <laughs> she does. So I, I and I, I do believe in this, not just because it's my own experience that I, you know, I, I, I certainly growing up made a lot of decisions romantically just to get a reaction. Definitely. So I, I, I definitely understand about that. Um uh, and I've seen people do that. I think our romantic choices are so tied up with, as you so well put it, the ripples of the past, the, the, the you know, what, what happened with our parents um, and what, and the stories that are passed down. And I think it's Sasha, isn't it, who is always trying to hear stories about her father at parties and stuff. And there are these wonderful stories that she sort of, because no, of course it's made worse by the fact that Margot won't talk about him. Yeah. So they have to sort of puzzle it together around the edges. But I think it's Sasha, isn't it, who hears wonderful stories about Richard climbing into a tree and serenading Margot and falling out and breaking his leg. Or they often in- involve somebody being drunk. Um, but, yeah, it's just that kind of glamour around it. Um, and hopefully what the journey they're supposed to all go on is to realise that, you know, they are their version of the events is skewed. It's skewed by Margot's silence. It's skewed by legend. It's skewed. But actually, you know, what is the truth? 
And I think in the process of the book, they come to a much better understanding of what that is. And basically, it's what it's really about is silence and secrets and silence are not good, are not good for a family. Because those children, when they had nothing explained to them, just into that silence, their imaginations took over and, and made it so much worse. Um, and so once everyone starts talking, things get a bit better. One of the quotes that I, I highlighted towards the end just made me think a lot about motherhood. And I'd, I'd love to hear you talk more about like exploring mm. that in here. But it was actually from Richard, his letter. Um, each one of you was so loved and wanted. Mm. And I saw Margot fall madly in love with each of you in turn. She became what she was meant to be above all else, a mother. It came so naturally to her. I am ashamed to say it, but I felt left out, unneeded, and I felt Margot was lost to me. And he later on goes on to say, even though I was a complete fool, Margot never stopped trying to make me part of things. Mm. She never gave up on me. I I think that the mother-daughter relationship is so amazingly done in this book. Margot is a woman living her life. I loved her. <laughs> she yeah. she did not, you know, she was a little, I think, rough to take in for her girls yeah, at yeah. times. But yeah. I just admired this woman. It's like, I'm still sexy and I still enjoy having mm. sex and partying. Mm. Um, can you talk about like the exploration of the the mm. relationship between Margot and her daughters? And especially like specifically when you sat down to kind of get to know them as characters, um, like, how did they present themselves yeah. to you? Yeah. So um, j- just quickly on Margot, I really wanted to write an old, uh, I hate to say it because it's, a, a, you know, a cliche, but a woman of a certain age, because, you know, women h- here in the UK and with you in the US, you know, they are responsible for, I think it's 80%, 40 to 70 year old women are responsible for something like 80% of fiction sales. Mm-hmm. And yet, where are they in books? Yeah. Where are they? Uh, You know, anyone over 40 is suddenly sort of discarded in a corner, you know, knitting or... I mean, just it's just intolerable, really. So that I purposely started out with that in mind, that I was going to have an older female protagonist who was really um, the main character. Uh, And then as I was writing, as I was writing the girls, the girls... Because being 50, but still in my head, I'm still 32. That seems to be the age I've stuck at. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Soulfully and spiritually. And and people will tell you that I'm like that. You know, that's what I'm like. Um, I found the girls so easy to write and felt so close to them. But as I was writing, I had this sudden shocking revelation. I mean, it was a shock to me because I'm one of those people who just, you know, I've got quite young children. I'm busy. I've got a job that keeps, you know, surrounded by young. I don't really think about my age at all. And so when I was writing it, I was suddenly thought, oh, my God, I'm closer now in age to Margot than I am the girls. And it was a real shock to me because I was like, that doesn't feel right. But then I think it really worked because it made you know, it made me able to write Margot, basically, because mm-hmm. uh, 10 years really isn't that far away. And I thought to myself, am I going to stop being interested in parties and going out and fashion and all the things that I love 10 years from now? No. And someone said to me, no, you'll probably be much worse. Um, and you'll, you know, so that made me understand Margot. On the mother-daughter thing, I really am interested in this idea that you get stuck in a role in a family. 
and you can't break out of it so there's the clever one the pretty one you know the sensible one and it doesn't matter I totally related to Rachel because I'm like I'm the oldest I'm the oldest one that's a role (laughs) me too me too and um so I really wanted to show you how whatever age you are you're still sort of playing that role because that's what that's the way your parents treat you and um I think the other thing I wanted to explore with the mother-daughter relationship was how different it could be for each one of them, how different it, it felt. So I know this from my relationship with my mother and comparing it to my sisters. You know, we've been on such different journeys. We started at different points and we've ended up at different points. Uh, and the relationship is always evolving. And I think one of the things that I've sort of had to come to terms with is that you never have this moment as a mom or as a person or as a woman you never have a moment where you suddenly go oh I'm a grown-up now I mean I you know and Margot is that uh, epitomizes how I feel about that mm-hmm. you just don't suddenly feel like a grown-up and I think it really helped me understand my mother and understand that you don't you're not suddenly this sort of martyr person who gives everything up for your family and which is what how I kind of thought you know that they family comes first and you suddenly aren't as important maybe you don't care so much about what you're doing and so I sort of changed my whole view about that and so really the girls is an exploration of that because they have to meet Margot as an entertaining human person as well as their daughter for her to give, to give them the time, you know, for them to actually have space in the room with her because she can really dominate a room. So I was interested in that, interested in how their relationships would be different. You know, with, um, for example, with Imogen there's a, and Margot, there's a very naturally easy, um, quite physical bond mm-hmm. um, that Rachel observes and is a bit jealous of. Yeah. But she... Rachel puts it best, really, when she sees that actually, you know, she should be happy that she's got something that's in in close to proximity. They've got to live and work side by side. Literally, Rachel is in the house that Margot used to live in and is still trying to live in. And she's made it work. They've come to some kind of partnership and way of working. And, you know, that's as much to be admired as something that's much more kind of, you know, natural. Um, And so, yeah, it's different for all of them. Um, but very, very, very complex. Uh, and Margot says things that she doesn't want, she doesn't think will be hurtful, but it is. Um, and I think mothers do do that. I mean, I sometimes hear stuff coming out of my mouth and I think, what? Why did I say that? Same. Yeah. Oh my God, that's the kind of thing my mother said to me, you know, something about what someone's wearing. And yet I know, I seem to be for some reason, and, and hopefully this is going to be good for, you know, a embarking on an author career I seem to remember everything you know some really really a lot of moments of being about 11 which is the age my daughter is now and I remember things my mother said to me that that I never really forgot uh, about something being unflattering that I'd put on or and think oh well I can never wear anything like that ever again and you're so extreme at that age you know if someone says something about your nose that that's it you know you're going to get a nose job and it's just really really it's a hard age for girls particularly i mean boys too but girls particularly if their mother says something to them um and your mother's on a pedestal even if you don't let her see her i've there's been a couple of times with my daughter where she's acting like i don't you know she's not listening she doesn't care my opinion doesn't matter and then something will happen, you know, a day later, and I'll realise that she's been in a mood ever since the, some throwaway casual remark I said. And you suddenly realise the power that mothers have over their daughters. 
Yeah, I have a 14 year old girl, mm. <laughs> and I, I feel that I feel that a lot. Yes, so true. Yeah, it's so true, and you have to. I think you have to try and keep it in mind that you do have that. And, and Margot does start to, Margot starts to realize that. I think she starts to. She definitely goes on a journey, and she starts to realize. I think she says, doesn't she? I think Alice. Oh, Alice says to you, you're going to have to stop interfering, and you're going to have to stop. I love Alice. <laughs> Everybody loves Alice. I think that, like, I loved that. I mean, the the time period, the scenes where Margot's, like, locked herself in her room and Rachel, as the oldest daughter, has really had to step Mm. up. Like, she's feeding and taking care of her sisters. Um, It just, I think sometimes we have these, these reminders through stories like this that, like, our moms are human. And even though she is a mom, like you said, we put her on this pedestal. But, like, she still loved and she still got her heart broken and that is tough like and we just I think we have this expectation or this like society puts this pressure on us as women of like Mm. well you just have to carry on because you're a mother and it's like you know no like (laughs) I'm really heartbroken to the point where I she could not get out of bed for months like just tucked away dark door closed Mm -hmm. didn't want to talk with anybody and it was hard to read but I was like this is so needed I think it just we need that reminder that like it's okay to feel things. I think so. And I think she's such a proud person, Margot, that she, re- I, and I think a big part of um, how she feels about the richer thing is that she's failed. I think she's thrown everything at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she literally threw everything at it. You know, you see that finally when we read Rich's letter that, that he knew that she threw everything at it um, to try and make it work. And you know, being faced with like people who are faced with alcoholism, which is a disease which you can't, you know, you can't do anything about, you know, really, um, in a lot of situations, you can't, you can't be that helpful. It's really down to the person, the other person, isn't it? So I think that she's, I think that it's really just a a, a failure. And so that makes her feel that she can't be a mother either. So what her going to bed is really about her just unable to think that she's got anything to give anyone. When you initially started the story, did you know we were going to do the letter at the end or no? No, I didn't actually. I, I th- That sort of evolved. It felt to me like they needed to, the, the reader and the girls needed to hear Richard's voice um, and that he needed to, that it was such a big thing what he'd done that they needed to hear why and the reader and the reader needed to hear why as well. Um, and I think people do, people, readers do seem to accept that. Yeah. You know, if you, if you don't want to disappoint someone and if you feel so disgusted with yourself, you know, it is sometimes easier. And let's face it. I mean, I know a lot of people who've done this, um, gone off and done something completely new and reinvented themselves rather than face up to the damage they've done this, this, and it's quite a male thing as well. Let's be honest. Um, that ability to compartmentalize. Um, I always just think I'd be too exhausted. I don't know how I'd have time. Um, but yeah, so I, I the letter came as it evolved. And just to answer your question about where the characters are in the girls, I think that they all have, they started all of them with a touchstone of me at different stages. Okay. Because that was my way in to make them real. So I was a rebellious teen who ran 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 as far away as, as I could get from home like Sasha and Imogen is the that that part I think Imogen is the one that's most widely accessible to people people often say or oh, who's I, I've been through that period in my life too where you're drifting 
and you know and you just can't take the reins of your life it's a very 20 i mean she's a bit old for it uh, but it's quite a tw- it is quite an early 30s it's a 20 something early 30s something where you, you're sort of in a rut and you know things have got to change and you can't do it and a lot of people identified with that because it's also quite arty because she's the you know you're creating art and really that leaves you exhausted for doing anything in your own life um and then Rachel, it, you know, was me at a different, a later stage, trying to have it all, kids, career, uh, please everyone, please your mother, do the house. So there's a touchstone of me at different stages in in all those girls. And then they just, I always used to go to events, Brie, and I'd hear authors saying, oh, you know, and then the character went off and did this. And I think, really, did they? Or were you just making that up? But as I was writing the Garnet Girls, that's really what happened. The girls, the girls went and evolved and and became these people. And to me, they're real now, and they're sort of off there. And as you know, I've left. Well, there's a, there, there's certainly room to revisit them at some point. I um, hope you do. Because <laughs> I mean, I, Rachel everyone... with the mayor, there was some, you know. Yeah. Were, threw a wrench in there with her marriage and I was like no oh, don't no. do this Gabriel. to Rachel she's been through so much already I've, <laughs> I've had so many messages from people saying do you think Gabriel did something bad because <laughs> um, I think people people really like Gabriel actually we loved Gabriel yes yeah, I think so I think uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, my personal view is he 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 probably didn't do that much. The worst thing he did was not telling her. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's very hard, I know, because I also am with a psychotherapist. You can't talk to your partner about anything. It's all confidential. So you get into that habit of keeping secrets. Keeping secrets. Yeah. So in a way, I, I kind of, I didn't spell that out because it's not Gabriel's story. But in a way, I understand why he doesn't tell her that something's got out of control. Because he's just not used to talking to her about anything to do with clients. I so, have to ask you about yeah. Sasha's situation. Sasha's yeah. like gorgeous and strong. And it, it it was like, check on your strong friends because you never know what they're going through. Mm, like, that's the I only know. way that I can put it with Sasha. And I'm like, Georgina, <laughs> where did this come from with Sasha? She's really going through it and nobody would know but then she has these scenes where she's kind of like acting out and it's almost like this cry for help but I'm not going to say anything I know she I I I feel Phil Kate became in a lot darker than I was expecting him to be I mean I've had like a lot of people I've had controlling boyfriends um but he did come out pretty dark but you know I really love Johnny Mm -hmm. and Johnny knows that family and Johnny really really likes Sasha so I'm just really hoping that that's going to go the right way for those two because sometimes the best relationships come out with two people who've got baggage because they know where they are they've been through some stuff they you know take each other at face value there's no pretending um so I I you know I, I feel like it could all be good for Sasha in the future well, I have a couple of random questions I want to throw at you before Go. we get off here, if it's okay. Yeah. First off, you you said 32. Like, that's your age mentally. Yeah, yeah. What was it about 32? What was it about it? I'm 36 right now, and I feel like I'm 17, eternally 17. But I'm like, I hope that changes. I just age. think it's... 
yeah, I think it's just early 30s were really fun. I, if you ask everyone, I've sort of done everything all the wrong way around. Um, so I settled down with a in a serious relationship, like, at eight, you know, 18, very similar, actually, to um, Sasha. And then so sort of missed out on university and stuff because I was doing proper, like, couple things and living with someone and going to nice restaurants and stuff. So then um, went through all my drama and, and was, you know, 32 is a good example. I had a big disposable income. I was on the, I was quite a young, made young director in publishing. I was in and out of the Grouchy Club. I was having lots of emotional nightmare dramas with various people, living my best life, having a lot of fun. Um, and so in a way, there's part of me that's always that, um, whatever else has happened to me um, and how I settled down and everything. So it's that really, that's what I mean. You know, I find it easy to tap into that woman that I was at that stage. I love um, that. I love that. <laughs> So that's what helped me with those with those Garnet girls to be that age, yeah. I read on your website that one of the authors you grew up reading and love, like, loving was Daphne du Maurier, and Rebecca mm. is one of my all-time favorite books. What's your favorite by her? Ooh, I mean, it probably does need to be Rebecca. I do love Frenchman's Creek. I and love Jama- Frenchman's Creek. And oh, Jamaica Inn. In fact, I but, but Rebecca is, I mean, Rebecca is just, you know... I think what I really want, you know, if I if I look at the people who sort of inspired my writing, what I someone said to me, because you don't really know what you're doing when you're a debut writer, you don't know what kind of writer you're going to be. But someone said to me, oh, I, I really like the Garnet Girls because it's escapist, but it's not sentimental. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I really don't want I, I don't personally enjoy sentimentality. Um, I qu- get quite irritated with it. Um and so I was so pleased because I I don't see why, you know, there's, you get a lot of description of genres and you get stuck in pud- pigeonholes in publishing. You know, are you commercial? Are you this? Are you family saga? Uh, and I love to be family saga, love to be commercial, want all that. But I, I think you could be escapist and take somebody places and do beautiful, glamorous settings without, you know, you can also be gritty and real and doing the two is important to me and that is really what's at the heart of the appeal of Rebecca I mean no one can ever forget the kind of drive up the gates to Mandalay and the description of the house and the mood the mood it's just the it's a whole mood I mean I can actually you know someone said to me today that a lot of people have compared my book to the shell seekers by Rosamund Pilcher and someone said to me on Instagram, they said, oh, gosh, when I was reading The Garnet Girls, it took me back to the age, the feeling I had of the age I was when I read The Shell Seekers. And I, I know, which is really, I mean, like, I'm going to put that somewhere to, to remind me when I'm struggling with my writing. But um, with with Rebecca, that is such a kind of that that sort of slightly gothic but glamorous the details of the house and the china figurines and the sea and the cliffs uh, it's a whole mood isn't it yeah uh, and mrs then, danvers oh <laughs> i love mrs danvers so much and the, i was just thinking of those billowing curtains when she finds her in that room so yeah. that that combination of you know some what what people might think is you know high drama you know kind of really really full on kind of dramatics isn't it going on people jumping out of cars and secrets and bodies and I mean that's you know but just beautifully done and with this wonderful mood so yeah no that is she's a massive inspiration and also there's an author I don't know how well known she is stateside but she's called Mary Wesley okay uh, and she 
wrote older she wrote quite a lot about what we would call posh people behaving badly (laughs) she wrote a book called the chamomile lawn um which is all set on a house by these cliffs over the sea and they're all really there's a family and they're all you know running around getting into trouble so she was an inspiration as well rosamund pilcher and also elizabeth jane howard who i love uh the cazalet chronicles which is about a family. But I was lucky. I mean, I I, I think because I was in lockdown, I was felt slightly removed from publishing at that time. And so in the end, I rather than trying to read the market or write a book for the market, there wasn't really any market. The market was gone. It was a mess. Um, I just ended up writing the kind of book I love to read. I love that. I just pulled up Mary Wesley and the first book that popped up was The Chamomile Lawn. Yeah, so. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's such a great book. Such a great book. Um, so tell me, like, is there anything that you've read this year that you really enjoyed reading? This year? Oh, God, that's such a difficult question because I read about a book a week. I really like, there's a book called This Family by Kate Sawyer. Um, it's published by Hodder and Stoughton. I really love her. Um I love, love, the book I love, I didn't read it this year, but the book I love, and I'm just waiting for the TV, or is it film, is The um, the Most Fun We Ever Had, the Claire Lombardo. Oh my God, can I just tell you, that is just so brilliant. And there's TV coming, or TV or film, or something, Claire Lombardo. Um, I'm just looking to see, The Most Fun We Ever Had. Yeah, she's an American writer, okay. and she was long-listed for the Women's Prize. Uh, Kate Sawyer, this family... Um, I'm trying to think what else I've read that's really, really good. Um, quite a lot of stuff that's not out yet. Uh, I really liked the, um, what was it called? My trouble is I can't remember anything. You know? <laughs> well, you read a book a week, so it's, it's, it's bound to happen. Do you, do, you, do, you find, do you find that? that you've, you, you, it literally, you read something and then you're like, oh, I like the Cleopatra and Frankenstein. By oh, Coke I've been Mellows. wanting to get my hands on that Yeah, one, yeah, yes. that's really, really good. Uh, yeah, lots of things at the moment, but I, it's all quite female dominated. The new Maggie O'Farrell is brilliant, the marriage portrait. That's been um, shortlisted for the Women's Prize um and that's fantastic um but yeah no I I read a lot but I do read a lot of female authors and I do read a lot of um what I would say is you know family but books about families oh like everyone I love the Claire Keegan small things like these Mm, that's okay that's beautiful it's won millions and millions of prizes and every yeah gorgeous gorgeous oh and um somebody I did some events with who's written this fantastic character called Grace Adams. It's called Grace Adams is sorry. It's called um, amazing Grace Adams by Fran Littlewood. And it's about a menopausal woman basically who goes on the rampage and it's brilliantly funny and great. But my, the queen for me is Taylor Jenkins Reid. I'm a total, total devotee. A devotee. I just kind of fell for Carrie Soto so badly. And then went on Twitter, I always remember this, because I'd I'd read um, Daisy years and years ago and liked it, but thought it was quite similar to some, some other stuff I'd read. And so put her away. And then came, just someone sent me Carrie Soto, because people send me books, and just thought it was amazing. I do tend to quite like tricky, difficult, flawed women. And then I went on Twitter and I said, what should I, oh my God, I'm obsessed. What should I read next? And I think this this reply went on for days. <laughs> oh, you need, oh, you need Malibu. Oh, you need, so I just read them all. And I just think she's brilliant. I think she's so good at um, character. Um, and Malibu with the family and the siblings as well, I loved. So Such I just a can't summary wait for, cover. 
I know. Has she got a new book? Do we know if she's got a new book? All I the last one I heard was Carrie, so I'm okay. hoping she'll like secretly just push something out. We'll see. Yeah, come on, come on, Taylor. <laughs> writing for you. So, what are you writing next? And like, are you mostly writing at home? Do you do you get to get out and write at cafes? <laughs> like, what's the writing looking for you like now? So. This is very, very hashtag smug of me, but um, I live on a houseboat on an island called Tags Island, which is just in the Thames down from Hampton Court Palace. And it's kind of like a, it's kind of a floating house, two story. It doesn't have a motor with a garden. And with my book money, with my book deal money, I bought a little um, canal boat, tiny, tiny little one and moored it on our back terrace. And I've turned it into an office <laughs> and I'm in it now and uh, it's creaking a bit. It's windy here today. And it's called Betsy because my daughter named it for me and it, <laughs> and it overlooks the weir and it's probably the most perfect place on earth. I mean, I, I mean, I find it hard to think there's a better place to write. And I am also, it's also perfect because I am writing a book set on the houseboat island. Oh, I cannot uh, wait. <laughs> so I, I, I got a lot of people, very kind people say to me that they loved the setting of um, the Garnet Girls and that you could feel the sort of longing for it. Yes. And I realized that I was going to be able to do good setting if my heart was in it. Um, and so obviously I live here and I love being on the river and I'm, you know, it's a big part of my life. So I am writing a book called Walnut Tree Island. I'm so excited. Please keep writing these books, these escapist books. <laughs> I have reread like parts of the Garnet Girls like over and over again. I highlighted oh, that's so, so much. Nice. And yeah, I could just, I could feel like, I felt like I was at this beach with them, like this, this oh, summer good. getaway. It was great. So can you share with everybody where they can keep up with you online? Yes. So I'm at Publicity Books on Twitter, um, which throws everyone off, but I've got quite a big following on Twitter as a as a book publicist, so I haven't changed that name yet. So at Publicity Books, and then on Instagram, I'm at Georgina Moore Author, and then I have a website, Georgina Moore, Georgina Moore dot com. Um, so that's where they can find me. I'm also on TikTok, but I, my children are running my TikTok account, so I have no idea. I went to the Hay Festival, um, and I took them because it was half term. And I think they were sort of determined not to be impressed. But then they were <laughs> quite impressed as like Margaret Atwood and Dua Lipa and all these people were um, walking around. And um, so they took, they were taking, Sonny was taking like pictures of me and doing a reel. Oh um, gosh, I love I that. <laughs> and using it, using it for TikTok. Um, so that was, so that was quite funny. So God knows what's going on. I haven't actually, I haven't dared look. <laughs> They know what they're doing. So I feel like you're in good hands. Exactly. Hope so. 